0: God I acknowledge the evidence of you just in this past week in preparing for this text coming before you wrestling with certain aspects of it and having points of peace having points of wrestle wrestling and and yet just your calm being provided your wisdom being provided interacting with some people over the past week that have gone through hard things and seeing how your grace is being, is being evidenced in their lives. I see even in the, the church that is suffering, the evidence that you have done an incredible work when they, in spite of their suffering, they praise you with their lips. It seems otherworldly to those who do not know Jesus. Jesus. Why are they praising when they should be distraught? God, I thank you for the evidence of the work you're doing among the church in Turkey right now where they are showing up and they are caring for people. Lord, may the evidence of your goodness show up there where, where those who have been a part of maybe the Muslim faith or, or maybe the agnostics or atheists, that they would start seeing that the only place they saw hope was encountering a believer in Jesus. God. God. May the evidence of your work in Kentucky go beyond that generation. I praise God that you are working among those college students where they are worshiping in spirit and truth. They're reading the word of God. They are confessing in prayer and then repenting and saying they're going a new direction. They're singing just with acoustic guitars in the room, but their voices are a heavenly choir. The world is coming in with cameras and reporters trying to understand what's happened there. Because they can't explain it. There wasn't some individual that said some great word. There wasn't like this moment of great confession by one individual. It was just an inexplainable, supernatural moment where people are simply responding in their hearts to what your spirit is speaking. Lord, I praise you for that. But we have been praying for years here, and I know other churches around us have been praying for years that you would do a fresh outpouring of your spirit upon the church of our region. That you would renew the hearts of the older generation, the middle generations, and the younger generations simultaneously where there is mutual encouragement, mutual blessing by just being in each other's presence because we're in the presence of God. So God, if we have sin that has been unconfessed, unrepented from, that is standing in the way of us being willing to just say, we let go and we let you be Lord of our lives, would you bring that about in each individual here? That they would not withhold from you your work by trying to keep the doors shut and locked, staying in darkness, even if it's in certain portions of their heart. God, I also ask that when we open your word, we would delight that it would be like those men on the road to Emmaus where their hearts were burning as Jesus explained to them the the word from the beginning to the prophets and into the moment of his death and resurrection. May our hearts burn as we open the word today. May as we sing, we sing with such conviction that our voice becomes the instrument of confidence and praise and declaration. Lord, we welcome you. Nothing human contrived, nothing human manufactured, we welcome you. Lead us, we ask. In the powerful name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm excited to get into the word of God this morning. How about you? All right, let's go into James chapter 1. We're going to continue our series out of the book of James. And uh, I was very glad to be able to see how the Lord used last week's beginning sermon Tom did an incredible job of bringing the truth of God's Word, but also with spirit and heart. And uh, we're going to continue, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, in in that spirit now. The key thing, if you were not here last week, that you need to understand from what is found in verses 1 to 4, is that joy, when it says joy, is something we're supposed to experience as part of a trial— that joy itself is not in the trial, but it's in the anticipation of what the trial will produce in you. And that's the key understanding in the text from last week is that when it says, Consider it all joy when you face trials of any kind, there is not joy in experiencing the hardship of the trial, but there is joy in experiencing what can be produced because of the trial. Consider when Jesus said, You know, when it said about Jesus that, Uh, For the the joy set before him, he endured the cross. The cross itself was not something that Jesus enjoyed. Let's make that abundantly clear. There was not joy in that scourge. There was not joy in being crucified and nailed to that cross. But because of what was going to come after the cross, there was joy what would happen i mean think about what jesus even prayed before he went into all that suffering he's like pass this from me i don't want to i don't want to experience that but yet i know i will and i must because i know what lies ahead if i do this and for that he set his sights on what lies ahead so today as we go into this text we're going to be looking at the the difficulty of of praying when things get hard Praying when there is great trials and asking for God's help and praying with confidence and full belief and full of faith as we pray and dealing with the issues of doubt. And so we're going to go into the text today and we're going to reread verses 2 to 4 and then continue on into verse 8. So beginning in verse 2, it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God, who gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. So James, again, continuing with this thought, like, Consider it pure joy when you face trials of any kind. Because what's gonna happen is God will use the trial in your life to bring about a maturity, a maturation in you that will then help you to not lack anything as you go through trials later. And so it's as as you go through this trial that's in the present term, it will help you get greater strength for what might happen yet ahead in your life. That's how God works. And so within that, he acknowledges though that as you're going through the trial and and you're experiencing it, you might come to a place of saying, "But I lack wisdom on how to navigate it." I mean, when we're in the midst of the storms of life, it's very common to feel like lost or not knowing how to pray for what lies ahead cuz you can't see what lies ahead. You're only in the storm. So what do you do if you're trying to make decisions in the midst of that storm and you have no sense of clarity? Well, James says, pray. If you lack wisdom, ask for it. Because he wants you to not lack anything. That's what God is trying to do with the issues of trials in your life. Is he doesn't want you lacking anything. But if in your journey of that, you lack wisdom, ask God. So it's a very basic response. Like, okay, so the goal is God doesn't want you to lack anything. But if you lack wisdom on knowing how to get through that storm, ask him and he will help you. So asking God for wisdom amid the trials is a posture of recognizing that you need help and that you need God to fill the gap. So that's a good thing. But then James takes this hard turn into a warning in light of that request or that charge. He says this, he says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because if you doubt, you're like a wave where you're being moved around by all the other forces. Seven In verse 7, it says then, you shouldn't expect to receive anything from God if you're doubting. And the doubter is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So basically, he's just said, Listen, if you're going to go ask God for something you lack, you better not doubt. Which might be a little bit of a disincentivation to be able to say, I want to go into this. I want to pray for this. And he's given all this warning. It's like, do you really want to pray now and discover that you're just riddled with doubt? Or should you go into it and deal with the doubt? Because again, his charge is don't doubt. If you're going to pray about something, you're needing wisdom in the midst of this trial. Don't doubt. And don't expect to receive anything if you doubt, because a doubter shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. And the doubter is like that wave driven by other forces. You have no control over your life, which is where he gives the final indictment. He says, The doubter is double minded. They're not single minded at all, they're double minded, and they're unstable in all that they do. Man, that's harsh. Because I got a feeling. I don't even think it's a feeling. I think it's a lived, experienced understanding. That each of us, when we pray, have some element of doubt as we encounter God. I think that more often than not, there is, you know, sometimes even with the mature faith, there can be doubt when we ask God for big things. So, when does it become the case when our doubt causes prayers to fall flat when does doubt actually cause god to say i'm tapping out i'm no longer involved well it makes me ask the question if james is saying listen you're going through a hard thing If you're lacking wisdom, ask God for help because he wants to help you deal with this issue. So ask. But then he goes into this whole thing on doubt where he's basically slamming anybody that would ever feel doubt when they're praying about this issue of wisdom. And imagine, somebody in the midst of a trial, do you think there won't be some level of doubt while they're in the midst of the trial and they can't see? So why is James so harsh on doubt? Why is he so harsh? Well, I think if we go back and we understand his journey, we might have a sense or understanding as to what he means by saying, "Listen, when you go into this and you pray, don't doubt." Why? Is it, why he's being so emphatic about it? So let me dial back and go back some time in it, into James's life. So Tom said last week in knowledge that that James was the half brother of Jesus. So he literally had was the offspring of Joseph and Mary whereas for Jesus he was the offspring of only Mary because the father through the spirit became was his father so we know that Jesus was half brothers with James and he was full brother with Jude who wrote the next to last letter in the scriptures So we have that story. We know that there were other siblings, but they're not necessarily identified in Scripture, but they're talked about. And so if we walk the journey of when James shows up in the text, you'll know that in John chapter 7, uh, verses 1 to 5, that Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus being the Messiah. They didn't believe in him to be the Son of God. They were at that place, in a place of disbelief, no faith, no confidence in their brother. Okay? So you have that situation going on. It is, it is something that they have not discovered yet, that Jesus is who he says he is. Keep in mind, they themselves were born of the seed of sin. So they have all the same nature you and I do. And what, do, what happens when a brother or a sibling gets built up higher than others how do the rest of the siblings handle it they're jealous they don't like it so keep in mind they were born having heard because they jesus was the oldest in the family so they were born into the family where they got to hear Je- joseph and mary talking about jesus's birth on his birthday and having to hear it over and over and over again that jesus was special he had angels announce his birth, and he, you know, he got, to, you know, got the opportunity to be, like, testified about, as Joseph and Mary talked about with other people, and then Jesus, when he's, like, around age 12 in the temple, starts teaching all the religious leaders and teachers of the law, and having authority over them as a 12-year-old, yeah, 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 blah, blah, blah. You get my point, right? They're very human. And so at this point, now that Jesus is into his 30s, 30 to 33, they're likely young adults themselves. They're hearing that Jesus is now doing some incredible things around the Sea of Galilee, healing people, teaching with authority, large crowds are showing up. And you're just like, Ugh, can't believe this. Like, the jealous thing has really gotten a heart of, uh, the heart of them. And that's why in John 7, they didn't believe. But then you can understand. So in Matthew chapter 12, they decide Mary's going to travel with them to go see Jesus while he's on tour. So Jesus is doing his ministry work. They show up. One of the disciples see Mary and, and Jesus' sibling showing up. Gets excited. like, oh, I can't wait to tell the master that his family is here, his mother and his brother's. So he shows up. Jesus says, your mother's here. Your brothers are here. And Jesus looks at the disciple and then looks at the other disciples and says, who are my mother and my brothers? You are my mother and my brothers. Okay, now, let me pause there. As one of the brothers, how would you feel if you already struggle with the specialness of your older brother? And then you hear all these things going on. You are slightly curious. You want to know what's going on. I mean, you know what your mom has taught you, that he is the chosen one. But they're having a hard time with it. Then they show up. And they're excited that maybe that he would actually acknowledge them before others. They could feel better. It's like, yeah, I'm the brother of him. But then Jesus simply does one of these, no, you are my family. And he points elsewhere. I can understand why James and Jude and the rest of the siblings could possibly come to a place of doubt, disbelief, lacking faith. But when Jesus resurrects from the dead, we get an account in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 of who all Jesus actually appeared to. He appears to the apostles. He appears to other individuals. But specifically, James was mentioned in verse 7 that Jesus appeared to him. We know that this was the point by when James saw the resurrected Savior, then James believed. He went from doubt to full belief. He went from little faith to no faith to full of faith. We know this because James himself ends up becoming the leader of the church. James was included, along with his family, was included in Acts 2, in the coming of the Holy Spirit. That's the birth of the church. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. They began to speak in the languages of many different peoples that were there in Jerusalem at the time. And these were languages they had not learned. So they experienced the Pentecost moment, like the apostles did. James was included. He gets to see that, the church's birth. And James becomes the leader of the church in Jerusalem. How did that happen? We know from extra-biblical sources, historians, that were near the time of James, that said that James became known as James the Just. Due to his purity of life, he was above reproach. He was, he was even acknowledged by his adversaries of being a very righteous and God-fearing man. So James the just was given his name because it's a statement to say that whatever James speaks, you know that he will not speak for his own benefit, but for the benefit of just for all. And so think about it a fledgling church that's trying to get its feet and they're now incorporating believing Jew along with believing Gentile. There's a mess in that journey of reconciling those two groups. And so how do you reconcile that together but to have a leader of that movement that is known as being pure and just. That James, we see in the book of Acts, regularly is the one that is perce- overseeing the, the, the discussion of how to handle this, the struggles of the early church. The just spirit, the righteous spirit, the calming spirit of James was helpful to the church in its beginnings. Another thing to know about James as to why his reputation spread so broadly was that James would go to the temple every day and pray. One, uh, one historian said that he became known as the man that had knees that looked like camels. Have you ever seen somebody who does flooring for a job, what their knees look like? There's, I have friends that they're in the flooring business and their knees don't look attractive. Not that that matters to me. The point is, is that when you get on your knees a lot, it does not make your knees look good. And, and so even the historians call that out, that he was so committed to praying on his knees that his knees began to look like that of somebody who works on their knees constantly. And he did. He labored in prayer. And he would labor in prayer at the temple and it was because of that, that, they, that the people that were religious leaders of the time, but not necessarily followers of Jesus, would hear those prayers, observe him praying, that, they, that he began to have an influence of he is a righteous and just man. So there was nothing to accuse him of. But his influence was growing. And so the religious leaders at the time decided, well, let's have him get on The temple and speak to all of those in the temple court area and tell them how they should look at Jesus. Because word was getting out that Jesus was the Messiah. He is the Son of God and you should follow him. And they needed to trust in somebody to be, they had a trusting voice to say something different. So they put James up on the corner of the temple. And what did James do? He said, My brother, my brothers and sisters, This Jesus you have heard about is the Son of God, the Messiah, and our Lord. And people were immediately shocked that he actually declared that as the brother of Jesus. And and one that had been praying in the temple. And so the people that had put them on the temple to speak this word got angry and pushed him off. He fell to the ground, survived the fall, And then they called for him to be stoned. And as he was being stoned, he began to pray some more. And they heard him pray, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Recognize that prayer? They recognized it too as the prayer that Jesus had said on the cross. They had heard Jesus say that. And so then they called for his death immediately. And somebody grabbed a club and hit him over the head and finished him off. That's James's story. Somewhere in the, in the storyline of that narrative I just gave you, he writes this book, this letter we know as James. James had gone through the significant season of no faith, no belief, and full of doubt. He understood what doubt can cause within a person. He knew what it had done to him. And now, with full belief in him, he was on his knees praying and enjoyed the favor of God, enjoyed communion with God. And so he knew how things used to be and how things are. And so if he, as a man of great prayer, says, pray and don't doubt, it's because he wants us to understand that doubt will be the hindrance to you having a thriving life of prayer with God. Even Jude, his brother, says in verse 22 of his book, saying, be merciful to those who doubt. That seems a little bit in contrast to the spirit of James, who's saying, don't doubt. The doubter is somebody who's unstable in all they do. They're like being tossed around by the waves. But it's under the context of praying, but praying specifically for wisdom. If you lack wisdom, ask of God, but don't doubt. But don't doubt. So what does this then mean in regards to prayer, regarding prayer? I mean, does this mean that if we pray and there's doubt at all, that God won't respond? Or that you shouldn't, you won't get what you're actually praying for because there's doubt in you? Or if we have doubt does that mean that God will not provide wisdom? Well, I mean, in the language it says don't expect to receive anything. But that's not conclusively saying that you cannot receive wisdom if there's doubt in you. Or how about the question if we believe, will God provide that wisdom? So, in other words, our belief, full belief, will dictate that God will provide that wisdom. Well, the text leads you there. But I have further clarifications I want to speak to. So continuing on, a fifth question. Well, what about other prayers? What about praying for people for healing? If we fully believe, when we pray for healing, will God heal them? You see, this is where the text gets really challenging because we look at it and it's like it feels like James is giving us some some theology on how to engage God in prayer and that our understanding of how to engage God in prayer better be in a place of full belief lest God not respond to you. So it gets people into this statement that if you pray for healing and it doesn't happen, then the conclusion or the assessment is we must not have believed fully. There must have been doubt if that person wasn't healed. Or if you go on to later in the book of James, we're going to deal with sin. Perhaps there's unconfessed sin in the person we were praying for, or maybe the person praying had unconfessed sin. That's why God didn't respond in, in healing that individual. So here's what happens. When you address this text and you improperly apply it in the way you teach others about prayer, there's a common phrase that gets used today in the church that can be accurate and good, but it also has a subtle way of going off the rails and being theologically incorrect. So what I'm about to say is a misunderstanding, a misinterpretation of the text. The phrase is this. We believe for it is another way of saying that when we pray and we're believing for it and our belief rises to that point where God must. You understanding what I'm saying? When we say, well, somebody's like got an issue they want you to pray for, and you say, "I'll believe for it with you." Again, not necessarily improper statement, but if you're saying that because you believe, The idea that if you actually hit the meter on the belief meter at this level, then God will because God must. That is bad theology, people. Now, it is also true that God desires belief in the way we pray. So we're going to unpack this a little bit, but there is a danger in our theology where we're starting to put God under the authority of man. That is not our role, and it is not how God operates. So, what does Jesus say to these things? So, I want you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17. So, turn to the left just a little bit to Matthew 17. Jesus is addressing this tension about. God's sovereignty, God's power, God's ability to respond in prayer, but also God's desire to receive prayers of belief. He's he's addressing that within this text in this moment. So Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 14, when they came to the crowd, a man approached Jesus and knelt before him. Lord, have mercy on my son, he said. He has seizures and is suffering greatly. He often falls into the fire or into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Jesus responds, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of the boy, and he was healed at that moment. Then the disciples came to Jesus in private, Which, if I was shown to be, like, inadequate, private conversations how I would go. (laughs) So the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, "Uh, um, why could we not drive it out? Jesus' response, because you have so little faith. Truly, I tell you, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Okay. So Jesus acknowledges that they were not successful at casting out this demon because their faith was lacking. Now keep in mind, already by this point, the disciples had had many occasions of being successful at casting out demons. So this was not their first rodeo confronting a demon. But yet, in this particular case, the demon didn't come out, and they're left to scratch their heads. And then they want to understand why Jesus casted them out, and they were not able to. And Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed. Now, do you understand the size of a mustard seed? If you've never seen it, it's a a pretty small seed. Now, you can see it. It's not uh, minute enough that you can't see it. It's it's small, but it's small. So if he's saying... That if you had the faith that's this big, it's kind of suggesting that if you had the faith of just 1% of you, then incredible things could be accomplished in prayer. It suggests kind of a low bar. I'd at least say an achievable bar, right? That's like, if I can have this much faith, incredible things can happen when you pray. You see, what that says is Jesus actually delights and responds to prayers prayed in full faith, but that does not limit or mandate or determine his response. Let me say that again. If he's saying that this much of faith in you can accomplish incredible things as you pray to God, and God can therefore accomplish great things through that prayer, What that communicates is that even though he enjoys prayers filled with faith, beyond the size of a mustard seed, that does not limit or mandate or determine his response. You see, God is already doing a work. What God is wanting to do is he wants to grow your faith. And he wants you to experience, as part of your prayers, the work that he's doing around you. And by praying into the situation, now you're joining God in the journey of the work he's doing around you. By not praying, you're just simply an audience. And more than likely, not even watching. Because the person praying is attentive. The person not praying is unattentive. So, Jesus is saying that, listen, if you just have this much, Incredible things are going to happen. So if it's this much, what's the rest of our substance then? Well, it's likely doubt. It's likely fear. It's likely sin of some kind. It could be a whole lot of things. But Jesus says, no, if you pray with this much faith, things will happen. So our prayers affect God in some way. But the measure of our faith, the measure of our belief is not the dictator for what God must do. But God wants us to go there in prayer so that we can join him in the work and our faith does grow, our doubts diminish, our faith increases, and therefore sin becomes less in us because we're now relying upon God. So what ultimately happens is prayer that is in growing faith and in growing belief will be rewarded in our communion with God. And therefore our understanding of his will and the way we pray will only be enhanced. And then we'll get to celebrate with his work. I mean, think about Jesus' prayer in the garden again. He knew he was going to die the next day. But what did he pray? He prayed for the cup to be removed. But what did he do also in that? He then relinquished, however, to the will of God. There was deep communion with Jesus and God. That he knew the direction of where God was having him to go. When we go to God in prayer, regardless of the level of belief or faith that we might have. That when we go to God with him and we're with him, he is not sitting back and just saying, okay, you're not pegging the meter high enough. <laughs> nope, oh, oh, almost pegged up. Almost can respond. No, God is like, he, is, <laughs> he paid a great price for you and I. Why would he ever withhold the journey of his power in prayer by your faith meters being so small? God's business is to grow our faith, and he intends to do so, and that's why when James says, when you are lacking wisdom in the midst of an incredible trial, go to God, because that's who can do the great work, and you will experience more in that prayer, and knowing what God's doing, and what God's about to do, and gaining a knowledge and wisdom that you can say, you know what, that came from God, as doubt becomes more diminished, because he acknowledges doubt will become the barrier for you to be able to see the work of God. He had spent all that season on his knees. He knew, he understood, he had come from doubt. He is now in full belief and he knew that doubt will be the hindrance to your soul. So what do we learn from James then in this? Number one is this, doubt happens It is an uninvited feeling that becomes a hindrance to our faith if you allow it to become the root of your life. You see, doubt comes in moments that we don't expect. The disciples clearly must have had a moment of doubt. And it doesn't make sense to us when you know that it's like they've already casted out demons. They'd already seen this work before. But for some reason in this moment, perhaps the manifestation of this demon scared them. Maybe there was a power there that was beyond something they had ever seen before, but it caused them to not have faith in the moment. Jesus didn't just say, well, I am removing you now because your faith was so weak. No, he used it to teach, and he grew their faith. He grew their faith. The key is don't let doubt become the root of your life, that from that doubt, you're praying, that the doubt is always the root by how you look at everything. Secondly, our doubt, again, this is part of what's been said in this text, our doubt does not dictate God's response, but in his great plan, our prayers spoken in belief are very much part of how he works. It's a mystery. I don't understand how a God that's outside of time he has always, always, always known what's going to happen tomorrow. He's always known it. There was never a beginning of that knowledge. So when human beings pray in this moment, and for us, we are in the context of time. I don't know how our prayers of faith or lack of faith intersect with a God that transcends all of time. That's a mystery to me. But what I do know is that God and his great plan wants our prayers to be spoken in belief and that's part of how he works. It's part of how he works. And you're going to see this as a common thread in James. As we look into James 5, you'll see that he wants prayer to be a part of it so that we can be a part of his work. Thirdly, rising from doubt to unwavering belief is a journey that God desires to lead you in. He is not sitting up there being judge over you and then condemning you by your faith or your doubt being off balance. Where doubt is high and faith is low. And God says, well, now I can't. No, God looks at that and says, I can help you. I can lead you to a better place. And I get there by what I'm going to say in number four. Jesus makes sure that we hear this by the continuation of the story that we have in Matthew 17 where it says the disciples went in private and saying, why? Why did it not happen when we were casting him out, trying to cast him out? There's another part of the story that is not accounted for in Matthew that's in Mark 9. Because in Mark 9, the man who had come with his son pleading for, for Jesus to help his son says, if you can help my son, Would you be able to do that? And Jesus kind of, you kind of hear it in his voice. He goes, if I can, of course I can. Of course I can. And then he says, and if you believe, if you believe, incredible things will be accomplished. And the man's response is beautiful. He says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus took pleasure in that that response because it was a self-awareness to acknowledge there was doubt. He believed. Do you hear that? He brought his son to Jesus. He believed. He had this much. And then he says to Jesus, but then help my unbelief, which was this much. And what did Jesus do? He didn't not heal this man because there was doubt in this in this father because there was doubt he acknowledged it no jesus healed his son so that that man's faith which was like this became like this so james when he speaks in this text saying you know listen i know you're going through trials I know things are hard, but you've got to know that there's a joy beyond the trial because God's going to produce in you a maturity, a growth in you that you won't lack anything. But if you do lack something, and it's particularly wisdom, ask of God. And then a key phrase that I haven't emphasized yet is this. If you lack wisdom, you should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. So if God was sitting up there responding to our prayers based on the meter of doubt versus the meter of belief as to whether or not he can move in that moment, you don't understand God. But James is acknowledging, listen, God's going to give without finding fault. If you go to God right here, God's going to give generously without finding fault of where your faith might be. So that your faith can be much greater. You see this played out in the life of Thomas the apostle, who doubted Jesus so significantly. You see this in Paul, who continued to beat at the church. He killed people who claimed Christ as their Lord and Savior. And James himself, the brother of Jesus, who I'm sure had some snickering moments with Jude's, like, "Can you get? Can you believe what our brother's doing?" Can you believe he just rejected us in that moment? Can you believe that he gets all the special treatment? Did God hold that fault against them to withhold the growth of belief and faith in them? No. God knew they had their issues. And God knew that he was going to bring about something stronger. So with Thomas, he brought them to that place. He said, if I could just touch Jesus where he was pierced with the spikes and with the the nails and the spear. And and Jesus, what did he do? He's like, all right, touch me. With Paul, who was, again, coming against the church, what did Jesus do? He met him face to face and says, why are you persecuting me, Paul? He met him right where he was at. And Paul's faith went from here to here. And James's brother, who had a difficult journey of having his older brother get all the attention, Jesus chose to meet with him face to face after his resurrection, knowing that James is going to be so transformed by this encounter, that James is going to be the glue, the peace, the wise one in helping the church get its footing. And these were all people that were riddled with faith, that God did a work before that faith ever grew. He met them where they were at and took them from here to here. Each of us here in this room have things we've been praying for. And doubt might be setting in. And you're wondering, is God not responding because... Of my doubt. Perhaps, perhaps. But then it says if you do have disbelief, ask God for help. Because God wants to move you into greater communion with Him. Would you join me in praying to our God now? So, God, I acknowledge that many times when I pray, because I get asked to pray over very difficult situations on behalf of people. And there are times when my faith and what I'm being asked to pray for is struggling. But Lord, I am thankful that you are merciful. As Jude says, be merciful to those who doubt. I am thankful for that mercy. I'm also thankful that when there's just enough faith, that little measure of a mustard seed, that you'd be like, you know what, I'm going to take you from that point to something greater. So, Lord, I pray that you would increase the faith of this room, that they would come to you in prayer, that they wouldn't just cop out on praying for difficult things because they're like, oh, you're a sovereign God, and miss out on being a part of the journey. But, Lord, you have said, pray without ceasing. You have said, pray about all things. So we are who come to you in prayer, and you say that prayers of a righteous person accomplishes much. Let us, Lord, come without the hindrances of faith issues or doubt issues or belief issues. Let us come to the merciful God, and that you can increase our prayer life into greater faith. So do a work now, as we do business with you. Speak to our hearts in Jesus' name. I pray.
1: Amen. 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 Would you stand and join us in this prayer that God would increase our faith and our trust in him. Let's join together. When all I see is the battle, you see my victory. Surrounds me. There's nothing to fear now, for I am safe with you. Yeah, so when I fight, so when. I It's good. I want to hear you do it one more time. Come on, sing. Jesus, Jesus.
0: so James encourages us, if we lack anything, ask God. And then we know that God welcomes that if there is doubt, to acknowledge it. And when we acknowledge it, and we're asking of God, we get to watch him work. If you choose not to pray at all, then you are simply not going to be a part of seeing God at work. You become an audience that's unattentive, So I encourage you, this is not a warning to not pray because there might be uh, doubt issues in you, but rather to lean in and pray to God and acknowledge where there's doubt and then let him do a great work. Because keep in mind, this much, and God can do incredible things through you. Having said that, if you'd like to pray with someone about about anything that's, you know, a burden in your life. We'll have people in the encounter room that would be glad to pray with you. I'll be up front as well, be glad to pray with you about whatever is upon your heart and mind. But we pray to a God who is active, wants us engaging him, and yes, he knows the future, but he wants us to be included in that and experiencing along with him. Amen. You are dismissed. Go in full faith.